Welcome to you wherever you are at, wherever you're watching this live stream broadcast from, and whomever you are with, we are so very glad that you are here with us for these few moments that we are together. Do want to take just a minute and remind you of that uh, wonderful resource called the U version. Uh, it's a free app that you can download on your phone or on your device. It's filled with all kinds of relevant ways to read the Bible and make it come alive in your experience. And so I want to encourage you, uh, even if you're not a Bible reader, in fact, at the end of this message today, I'm going to give you a little reading assignment from the U version. And so I hope that you have that available. And also, uh, if you are familiar with it, uh, on the lower right-hand corner, you can open a menu, click on events, and there you will find a complete set of notes for today's message. Well, uh, speaking of our message, want to jump right in. Uh, we are in a series called Find Your Family Fortune, and it's uh, based on the idea that it has always been God's intention to pour his goodness into families so that his goodness can not only be experienced in our relationships, but come through us into the world. In fact, God made this great promise to Abraham. Uh, he said, I'm not only going to bless you and your descendants, your family, but I'm going to bless the world through you. Uh, I love this uh, prophetic word from the prophet Zephaniah. He says, I will gather you, and at that time I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the people of the earth when I restore your fortunes before ver your very eyes, says the Lord. And so uh, this is about how do we tap into that? How do we access that good fortune that God has already promised that we would experience? And how do we make that our own? Uh, Psalm 128 describes uh, the riches that God would like to work in all of our families. He says, you will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessing and prosperity will be yours. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Yes, this will be the blessing for the ones who fear the Lord. Uh, may you live to see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. And so uh, maybe you're thinking, well, that doesn't exactly sound like my family, uh, you know, being blessed to that degree of fullness where we actually become an inspiration to others. Well, you're going to like this message today uh, because this message is for those families that have suffered brokenness, that have experienced abuse, toxic families, uh, families where anger and hurt and pain are the backdrop for trying to do relationship together, perhaps families that have experienced abuse, heartache, emptiness, loneliness, or stress. In fact, the title uh, for this message uh, this weekend is Beyond Family Shame, Moving Beyond Family Shame. And, uh, you know, most of us have had to deal with shame in some way in our lives. And I want to uh, jump into this topic by giving you my description of what family shame uh, looks like and sounds like. It's that feeling that God is generally disappointed with you and with your family. Or maybe at the best, God's disposition would be meh. Uh, but it's that general feeling that God's not real thrilled with you or your family, and therefore, God will withholds his best from you. 
Uh, you know, that's a, kind of a disposition that many families have to work through. Uh, one uh, expert dealing with this whole idea of shame and how it comes into our lives and works its way into our relationships. A woman named Brenny Brown, uh, written several books, uh, a world-class speaker, and uh, here is how she describes shame. Uh, she says, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed. And therefore, and this is key, we are unworthy of love and of belonging. Now, if you believe the scriptures, uh, all of humanity is flawed. We're all broken. We're all in need of God's repair and restoration and redemption. But where uh, that sense of shame becomes dysfunctional and something that actually hinders our relationship with God and with each other is when we believe that because of that brokenness, we are unworthy of love and unworthy of even belonging. In fact, when we try to do life with that sense, uh, according to a lot of uh, researchers and psychologists and social workers, there are really three big ways that we try to compensate or cover up for this internal sense of being stained or less than worthy. Uh, perfectionism. We try to cover up our flaws with a pretense of being all together. Uh, criticism. We're aware of our own brokenness, and so we tend to project that onto others. And then finally, a dumbing down of our own hopes and dreams and aspirations in life based in that feeling of unworthiness. Well, uh, here's the truth. Our homes uh, can actually become breeding grounds for shame. Hothouse environments for producing humans who carry this sense of being less than worthy of love and connection. In fact, uh, a wide spectrum of homes uh, can produce shame. It can just be homes where there's a high degree of tension and unresolved conflict. And that tension and uh, those untalked uh, through issues tends to communicate to the children that something is wrong. Uh, they can also be uh, homes where there's just outright addiction and abuse. And, and those homes become hothouse environments for breeding shame. Uh, here's one, uh, homes where there is a great chasm between spiritual beliefs and emotional health. Uh, when there's this sense of having all the right doctrine and all the right theology and following all the right rituals and practices, but there's, there isn't the, uh, the embodiment of those truths in the form of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, that the very uh, the, uh, disconnect between faith and reality can become a source of shame. Uh, here's another way that uh, shame is described. It's something we've experienced, done, or failed to do that makes us unworthy of connection. And see, this one is huge when we realize that uh, how God brings his blessing into our lives is through connection with other people and uh, connection with him and intimacy in our home relationships. And we have this sense that the shame becomes a barrier uh, from connecting from others. We have an issue. 
And uh, this is not new. In fact, this goes all the way back to our original family uh, of origin. Uh, all of our mom and dad, uh, Adam and Eve, uh, were told that uh, in Genesis chapter 2, uh, they were both naked, and, and this is key, they felt no shame. Uh, they were transparent. They were unguarded, they were open, and they felt no shame. And that's a, a critical uh, observation about the initial way that God c uh, created Adam and Eve to connect with each other and to pass on that connection to their uh, children. But unfortunately, uh, that's not the way things stayed. A sin entered the world. Adam and Eve chose to distance themselves from God's counsel and, and their connection with God was broken. And all of a sudden, shame became a, a clear part of their relationships. Uh, they now covered themselves up uh, from God and from each other and uh, began to defend and distance themselves. You know, my family uh, was one of those hot house environments for the production of shame-filled people. In fact, shame was the air that we breathed. If you've heard my story, uh, my father died when I was six, and, and uh, we had an abusive stepfather figure, and uh, he was violent, he was addicted, he was uh, twisted, and uh, those were his good attributes. But uh, all kinds of hiddenness and brokenness emerged uh, with me and my siblings in that environment. Uh, and I can remember, uh, you know, we, we literally barred the doors from company. And when my friends came over, I had to visit with them out on the porch, lest they come inside and, and experience the kind of brokenness that was normal for us. And uh, I remember uh, this was kind of a parable of what life was like for me in the fourth grade. Uh, we had little uh, to survive on outside of uh, uh, welfare food. And uh, one morning I ate uh, from a big pot of white rice that was all there was for breakfast uh, with the addition of orange soda pop. And so uh, I had my fill of white rice and orange soda pop and went to school and uh, it wasn't settling real well in my stomach. And I remember sitting in history class and I had my big history, American history book open and uh, lo and behold, up came breakfast, and uh, I remember uh, a girl sitting at the desk next to me who I happened to have a crush on, uh, her words of compassion, as she looked over, she said, ooh, <laughs> you know, that one still comes up uh, in therapy, uh, pardon the pun there, but, uh, you know, this week I was really encouraged when I heard uh, one of my heroes, uh, a man who's a great leader in the modern church today and, and has influenced thousands upon thousands of other leaders, has been instrumental in bringing many, many thousands of people uh, into the hope of Jesus Christ and through his leadership have emerged all kinds of ministry to orphan children and uh, global impact, a truly an exceptional leader. And I heard his, his personal story, uh, his testimony, this week, and he said through therapy, through his own personal therapy, he has identified two main drivers in his life, and he went on to describe what those were. The first primary driver is, he said, is a, a sincere desire to share the hope 
that he has in Jesus with others. And that drives much of his uh, behavior and his leadership and his investment in others. But he said the other primary driver in his life is shame. A feeling that he's somehow flawed beyond how others are. A feeling of inadequacy. A feeling of being less than worthy of God's best. And uh, he talked about his journey of learning to live beyond shame. Well, we're going to look at a, a wonderful family story this morning that comes from the Old Testament. And it's one family's journey beyond shame that could have been completely debilitating to them. But instead... Uh, we see how they move past it. And this uh, story is from the book of Ruth. And uh, we read right away in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled. Uh, in other words, uh, this was a chaotic time in the history of Israel. And uh, you might say that political upheaval was the norm. Uh, one verse from the book of Judges says, every person did what was right in their own eyes. Kind of sounds like, modern times and it was in that context uh, additionally there was a great famine in the land of judah and so a man from bethlehem in judah together with his wife and two sons went to live in a really what was considered a god forsaken country they went to live in the country of moab which incidentally uh, had all kinds of vile beliefs and practices in fact one of their practices was the sacrifice of children to appease the, uh, the gods that they served. So in this time of famine, uh, this family uh, leaves Judah, heads to Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went to Moab and they lived there, and thus begins this family's journey. Now, Emelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons in that incredible uh, land that they had moved to. Well, the two sons married Moabite women. One was named Orpah, not Oprah, but Orpah, and the other was Ruth. And after they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilian also died. And so Naomi has experienced incredible tragedy. Not only has her husband died in this foreign land, but now her two sons died, leaving her with her two Moabite daughters-in-law. Well, the story begins to turn in chapter 1, verse 6, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. In other words, there's some relief from the famine, and so Naomi catches wind of this, and she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living, and she set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Now, there's an incredible scene that happens somewhere in between Moab and Judah, where Naomi uh, realizes just how barren her life has become. In fact, she uses the word bitter, and she tries to convince her two daughters-in-law that they're really not doing themselves any favors to stick with her. And so she begins to have this conversation with them, exhorting them to return to Moab, that they stand a, best, a much better chance 
of having a happier life there. Uh, but uh, Opah is uh, persuaded, and so she heads back to Moab, but not Ruth. And uh, we have uh, this interaction between Naomi and Ruth on the road between Moab and Judah that has really become a classic uh, uh, interchange. In fact, uh, the words that come out of Ruth's heart and her mouth are often used at wedding ceremonies. And here's what Ruth said when, Op when Naomi tried to convince her to return to Moab. Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. In fact, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will become my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord, whom uh, she had obviously only come to know through Naomi, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates me from you, So in spite of their difficulties, this great pledge of loyalty comes from her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And so we're told that the two of them went on until they came to Jerusalem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And, and here's why the women exclaimed, can this really be Naomi? Uh, is this really uh, Naomi who left us over a decade ago uh, to try to survive in a foreign land? And then uh, really we begin to find out uh, the truth about what has happened in Naomi's heart over this past decade. Uh, Naomi says to these people who, who once knew her well, don't call me Naomi, she told them. And actually, uh, the name Naomi means uh, pleasant or my delight. Uh, instead, she says, call me Mara, which means bitterness, uh, because, and, and this is key, the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi or pleasant? The Lord has afflicted me. The Lord has brought misfortune upon me. You know, it's an amazing uh, disclosure of Naomi's heart. And uh, though, you know, you may read uh, the description, she lost her husband, she lost her sons, uh, she made a go of it with her Moabite daughters-in-law, when in fact, her heart was deeply troubled uh, through this incredible uh, travesty that she, she was enduring. And uh, she says indeed that she'd come to the place where she felt that God himself was turned against her, that it was God who had made her life bitter. In fact, she says, I went away full, but the Lord made me empty. And, and I, I just got to ask you, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever gone through a season of life where it feels like God's not showing up as you had hoped he would? And in fact, uh, things come your way, have come into your life that you never could have planned on. And uh, all of a sudden, your, your fullness, your hope, your joy, your expectation, your anticipation uh, have gone away. What once was full has now become empty. You know, a, a big testimony of the scriptures is that God does not guarantee that we won't go through difficult things. And where those difficulties become debilitating shame 
in our lives is when we reach the conclusion that uh, there's something broken in me where God himself has set himself against me, or at least he's decided that uh, he's not going to look at me and mine as a family that can reflect and display and contain and experience his goodness. And uh, so here's the question. Uh, how do we move from that sense of, of uh, brokenness, that there's something uniquely flawed about us that keeps us forever somewhat distant from God's best? You know, we read those incredible descriptions of the family that have God's blessing on them. And uh, here's the truth. At some point, uh, Naomi's journey began to change. Though her heart was filled with despair, though her life had experienced great loss and brokenness, beneath it, there was still a flicker of hope that God had something for her. You know, when we started this series, we described family faith in this way. That family faith is the belief that God has something far better for you and for yours than you could ever produce on your own. And certainly Naomi was in that place and, and that God can be trusted to bring that about. You know, sometimes that trust, that hope in God is mixed with despair. As it was with Naomi, uh, nevertheless, in spite of the fact that, that God in her eyes had made her life bitter, that the Almighty had turned his hand against her, she still, beneath that, had this flicker of faith where she believed that possibly God could do something better in her life. In fact, here's how it's expressed in Naomi's story in Ruth chapter 1, verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, uh, she and her daughter-in-laws prepared to return. See, sometimes uh, we have to hitchhike on the faith of someone else. Uh, maybe we see God doing something exceptional in someone else's marriage, in someone else's brokenness. Maybe we hear an inspiring story of how uh, a family came from the ashes of despair into the beauty of God doing something through them. You know, I heard someone describe it in this way. Uh, your test becomes your testimony. Your mess becomes your message. And, uh, and your despair becomes uh, the context in which God does something exceptional. And uh, when we don't see that happening in our own families, we can take a lesson from Naomi and be encouraged, maybe just a spark of faith by seeing it happen in someone else. And, and here's the real truth. Uh, the Bible reveals God is no respecter of persons. Uh, God doesn't pick one family over another and say, well, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to leave you to your own resources. Uh, God's desire is that all would come to the knowledge of his good will for them. Uh, don't we often think that way, though? That because there's something about us, there's something about our history, there's something about our own personal journey that disqualifies us from God's best. And we allow our family shame to cut us off from intimacy with God 
and unfortunately from intimacy with each other. And for all of her pain and disappointment, Naomi has this flicker of hope. And I, and I will say this with absolute confidence. God always notices that flicker of faith in the midst of heartache. God always notices people who turn their, their hope to him when their lives look destitute and broken. Uh, that kind of faith, Jesus always noticed. I think of the one story uh, we're told that there was a Canaanite woman uh, who came to Jesus crying out. She said, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed, and she's suffering terribly. And uh, the Lord obviously had compassion on her, but he said, woman, uh, I've not come uh, for the, at this point in my ministry for those outside of Israel. I've come for the lost children of Israel. And this woman had an amazing response. She said, Lord, uh, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the table. And her point was that, Lord, I know you're good. And I know that if I put my hope in you, something good will come to me. And I love the response of Jesus. He said, woman, you have great faith. Your request has been granted and her daughter was healed at that moment. Uh, see, Jesus will always notice uh, yearnings towards him that come in the midst of our pain and our despair, and yes, even our shame that would separate us from him and from each other. Jesus said it like this, a bruised reed I will not break, and a smoldering wick I will never snuff out. See, here's the truth about God's response to our brokenness to our despair uh, rather than him piling on and making our lives more bitter by withholding his best uh, here's the truth god's strength is made perfect in our weakness god's best comes through the most apparently when we are weak when we are broken when there are things about us that uh, have marred and maimed us even and flawed us in our own eyes. The Apostle Paul knew this well. Uh, he's the one who coined those words, God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. He said in another place, we have God's treasure in broken vessels. Uh, he wrote these truths because he lived them. He allowed his test to become his testimony. Paul allowed his mess to become Christ's message, and he allowed his misery to become Christ's ministry. Uh, listen to these words of the Apostle Paul towards the end of his ministry. He said, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, and I was a violent man. I had a lot I could be ashamed of. He said, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And here's the capstone of his statement. He says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. In other words, if you're going to believe anything, believe this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
He came into the world to save people who are broken and flawed and whose lives are a mixed bag and whose families are complicated. Uh, He came into the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display. I might be a showcase for his immense patience and an example uh, for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. See, Paul knew that God does his best work uh, when people acknowledge their flaws and their failures. Well, uh, one of the, uh, the stories, storylines that we can't ignore in, in the story of Naomi and Ruth's family and how God brought them from shame into a place of fullness was an idea of a guardian redeemer. And uh, this uh, guardian redeemer uh, was actually a law that was enacted in Israel where uh, when a man uh, uh, passed away, that uh, there were, there were uh, people in his family lineage that uh, had to step up to the plate and had the opportunity to acquire not only his uh, land and possessions, but his family as well. And so that this man's name would not pass away uh, from the family, uh, family tree. And so in Naomi's story, uh, she has a guardian redeemer that takes note of her return to Jerusalem. And uh, when her Moabite daughter-in-law, Ruth, is out working in the field, it happens to be the field of Boaz. And uh, Boaz notices this young woman. In fact, he sees her working out in his field, uh, knowing that Naomi has returned. And he says, "Uh, who does that young woman belong to? In other words, who's the babe who's working in my field? And uh, he was informed that this is the daughter-in-law of Naomi. And so uh, Boaz uh, becomes a hero uh, in the lives of Naomi and Ruth. In fact, um, You'll have to read the story on your own, but uh, uh, Boaz uh, extends uh, his rights as a kinsman or a guardian redeemer, and he brings uh, uh, Ruth uh, and Naomi into his care. He marries Ruth, and uh, uh, this wonderful uh, statement of the outcome of that uh, that marriage is that um, we're told that... Uh, when Boaz and Ruth were married, they had a child, and uh, that child became uh, the father of a, of a guy named Jesse. And Jesse was the father of King David. And uh, if you follow the whole story of the Bible, King David, eventually, uh, through his lineage, uh, comes the birth of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. All of this through a foreign woman, a refugee in every sense of the word, who comes under the care of her guardian redeemer, Boaz. And uh, so, uh, you know, in a, in a beautiful way, uh, Boaz uh, comes to symbolize the person of Jesus Christ and, and uh, symbolizes the one who would notice uh, us in our brokenness in our shame, in our desperate condition as foreigners uh, who have been away in a, in a land that's uh, ungodly in every sense of the word, uh, but we've heard hope, 
We've heard the news that God is providing for his people the bread of life. And so as we come, we experience the, the acceptance, the love, the provision, and the covering of the one who is truly our guardian, redeemer, the person of Jesus Christ. And the, the writer uh, to the book of, uh, uh, book of Hebrews, which, by the way, this book speaks a lot about how to have intimacy with God through what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. And uh, interestingly enough, the writer addresses shame uh, quite a lot in this uh, book that talks about how we regain that connection with our creator and become recipients of his fullness. And in Hebrews chapter 2, uh, the writer goes through the role of Jesus Christ in our lives and how he had to be made like us in every way in order to bring us back to God. And we read these wonderful words in uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verses uh, 9 through 11, and bringing many sons and daughters to glory. That's us. That's you and I. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. In other words, for Jesus to become our guardian, redeemer, he had to He had to wrestle with the things that we all wrestle with. And he became our perfect high priest as a result. Now, uh, these words, both the one who makes people holy, Jesus, and those who are made holy, us, are of the same family. Uh, That's an amazing statement that those of us uh, who have drifted from God, who are sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, who have this chasm between us, uh, Jesus comes to bridge the gap, to restore us to our creator, our heavenly father. And so being made in human form, like us in every way, we're told that uh, we are of the same family. And then this amazing statement, so Jesus is not ashamed to call them, to call us, to call you, and to call I his brothers and sisters. Incredible uh, story of how God takes people who could be uh, diverted through their own personal shame, uh, who could be hopeless because of where we've been, and instead becomes exactly what we are, and what we need, and offers himself, and is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. So I want to end this message with one other observation from Naomi and Ruth's story, and it really comes and emerges not only from Ruth's commitment to Naomi, where you go, I will go, and your God will be my God, and your people will be my people, but it continues on with Boaz, and his honoring his family connection to Naomi and bringing Ruth uh, in as his wife. Uh, but one of the, the, the meta messages of Naomi and Ruth's story of moving from shame to God's fullness is that God honors family ties. And when we do the same, we experience his riches. This is extremely important for families that want to find their fortune. God honors family ties. He honors loyalty. He honors family compassion, family commitment, family kindness. And that through those valuing of those connections, uh, God's life 
uh, comes into our homes and flows out through us. Uh, loyalty, trust, compassion, and kindness. These are the pathways that God uses to bring his riches into our families. You know, I uh, shared with you the, the brokenness and the shame that uh, was a part of my family of upbringing. And, uh, but I've also seen the other side of that equation. In my relationship with Jesus Christ, I've known promise and uh, great hope and uh, great uh, affection from God. And uh, in a sense that his hand is on me, I could truly say, surely mercy and goodness have followed me all the days of my life since I began following him. Uh, but I will say this, uh, that is not without times of testing. That is not without times of disappointment. Truly, there have been times when I could say, God, we went into this full, but we, we came back empty. We had so many hopes and dreams and aspirations, and it seems like uh, they all fell by the wayside, and you have to kind of pick up and manage. But one thing that we re remain constant in uh, my marriage and raising of four kids is that my wife and I never wavered in our commitment to each other. Doesn't mean we didn't have thoughts about, you know, how much easier life might be if we weren't attached to one another, but we stayed in the, in the yoke with each other. And it was interesting when our children moved out of the house, we began to hear from them how grateful they were for the covering that we provided for their lives simply through our loyalty in our commitment to one another. In fact, uh, uh, I received a text uh, from one of my sons this week. And uh, because of the COVID pandemic, uh, his employment has been thrown upside down. Uh, he's been looking at uh, graduate school and it's just been a, a difficult stretch for him. But in the middle of it, uh, he's finding uh, joy at the family that God has connected him to. In fact, in his text, he said this, uh, thanks for spending time with me yesterday and for the base of family that you and mom have always provided. Uh, I tell you, uh, those words are all I need uh, for the next few decades. Uh, thanks for spending time with me and thank you for the base of family that you and mom have always provided to us. So I want to invite you to pray with me. And uh, as we pray, uh, let's, let's let Jesus uh, minister to us, the one who is not ashamed to call us his brothers and his sisters. Lord Jesus, we come to you right now, and we thank you uh, that you are indeed our uh, kinsman redeemer, our guardian redeemer. Lord, when, when we may be... Uh, overwhelmed by our own setbacks, our own disappointments, uh, maybe even our own sense of shame that, that somehow God has turned his hand against us. Lord, we can look at you and know that you have promised that you would never, ever leave or forsake us. And uh, I want to pray for any of you, uh, this, as you're hearing these words, you're thinking, you know, I've never really uh, connected with my guardian redeemer, I've never connected with the person of Jesus Christ, but I sense that my best future and perhaps the future of your family and your marriage uh, depend on you turning your attention to him. And I would just invite you right now to open up 
to his presence. He notices you. He always notices those flickers of, of hope in him and that faith that might even come through clenched teeth. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And if, if that's where you're at, I want to lead you in this prayer. You could say this out loud or just pray it in your heart. Lord Jesus, I, I open up to you. I recognize I need you. And uh, I invite you to come and, and, and begin to restore my connection to God. Uh, restore my connection to you. Uh, begin to bring your health and your riches and your hope and your future into my home, into my life, into my heart, and through me into my family. And Lord, whatever uh, sin is in my life that has distanced me from you, I turn from that right now and I turn towards you and though I don't know exactly where this journey will go I believe that you've promised it will take me to good places and so I put my trust put my hope in you in Jesus name I pray and Lord for all of us uh, we just want we want to be in your care we want to be near enough to you to uh, hear your voice we want to be Lord those kinds of people that you can use to bring your kingdom uh, into this world and we thank you lord that nothing about us qualifies us for your best it's by grace that we've all been saved and lord this is not by works that any of us should boast and so lord if if we're trying to manage our shame through perfectionism or through uh it's coming out through criticism of others or lord maybe we've even dumbed down our expectations of what God can do in our homes. Lord, we turn from that right now and we open our hearts to you and we say, Lord, be it unto us according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen.